0: There is six times more water in the air than all of the rivers in the world combined.
1: What if we get it right? I, 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 sorry, I paused there. I hesitated. Yes. Yeah, <laughs>
0: okay, tell me who you are. The technology is a vehicle, but the change is 100% human. You know, it's a behavior change. What
1: if we get it right? Welcome to the podcast series What If We Get It Right? People are getting it right everywhere. And in spite of the enormity of problems when viewed from a global perspective, these people are forging new pathways and allowing us to see into that future. So good morning. It's the morning of the 19th of May, 2020. And it's uh, episode seven of What If We Get It Right. And today I speak to Anastasia Kashenko, the CTO of Magic Water, a social enterprise harvesting water from the air, for use in off-grid communities. Good morning, Anastasia. Hello, Tessa. Thanks for having me. It's it's nice to have you uh, on the other end of my uh, computer. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) still uh, far away. But where are you right now? I'm seated in East London. East London. And I'm still in Amsterdam. And I wanted to start this What If We Get It Right podcast with the uh, same question I ask all of my guests. And that is... Can you tell me who you are?
0: Yeah, what a question. You put us right on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, so uh, let's go backwards. I am the CTO of Magic Water. I am one of three women um, who have been sort of brought this, this entity into being almost three years ago now. Two of us are still at the helm, so to speak. The whole team is in Kenya. And so I guess that is the most recognized part of my identity. It involves, you know, leading our team, leading projects in India and South Africa and in the last year in Kenya. But I'm sure we'll we'll talk more about that later. So I guess that's my first answer to who who is it that I am.
1: <laughs> can you tell me again, if I peel off another layer then, can you tell me who you are?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I enjoy speaking with people who think deeply about the world. I enjoy uh, spending time in nature and, and and I really do love writing. So I love reading people's writing and then I like quietly creating some of my own that maybe someday I, I will put in the world. Uh, but yeah, I think that's like probably the, the medium layer of my uh, of me and probably the one I relate to most. It's sort of
1: my inner self I'm going to ask you one more time. Can you tell me who you are?
0: I have to say, I have to always mention, I always feel a bit of imposter syndrome, which I think is super common in broadly these circles, whatever they may be, social entrepreneurs, I guess. Definitely there. Definitely a big old imposter syndrome <laughs> deep down.
1: Um,
0: yeah, you know, uh, I think deep, deep down, I'm just a ball of questions and energy and sort of made up of the same stuff of everything else, really. It's funny. I think I do have to mention the imposter syndrome because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we had, we have all these identities and all these layers, and uh, when I look at what's in the middle of all of them, it's kind of like
1: just existence. I don't know, maybe awareness or one of those esoteric words. <laughs> and then I haven't even told my listeners who like the outer body of uh, of uh, Anastasia Kashenko, who I see in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're like, who is this person? (laughs) No, I'm just a regular human. (laughs) Young woman based in uh, London, but originally, uh, uh, well, what is originally, right? But you grew up in Canada, but not originally from there, you said. Can you paint a picture of your childhood? Like, where were you? What did you absolutely love to do? How did you look at the planet around you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was born in, in Ukraine, and then when I was a baby, along with my siblings who were 10 and like seven at the time, we up and moved to what might as well have been like an alien planet, because this was before the internet, before the mass internet days. And um, yeah, my parents arrived with pretty much like pots and pans and things, and me like a baby strapped to these carts in in the Toronto airport in Canada, and it was Christmas Eve. And so the story goes that there was a lot of confusion because they walked out the airport was empty, but there was all these lights everywhere and so of course, in Ukraine, Christmas isn't something that's celebrated. but <laughs> you can be assured that on the twenty fourth in uh you know a North American country, it was all shut down and just full of these blinking lights and these huge highway overpasses and yeah, I mean, I think even though all my known memories are from Canada and i'm every day i'm grateful for absolutely the enormity of the uh, privilege of growing up there. I, yeah, I I still feel, I think like deep in me as a child, there was this feeling of looking out at a new place. You know, there was never a sense of this is always what has been. I guess those roots to our family that remained in Ukraine and is still there. And our heritage um, shaped how we moved through the world, shaped how how we worked in school or the gratitude we felt for things, the lack of taking things for granted, perhaps. Um, and I think a lot of that is also because of seeing our parents work so incredibly hard and sacrifice um, everything in our eyes uh, just to give us, you know, what they thought would be a better a better life. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a really kind of, it's funny. It's, it was comforting knowing that I grew up around other immigrant kids who... Whose identity was sort of this blend like so you had to just kind of define yourself by things that that you could hold on to that did make sense to you. so yeah, I think that was kind of the the early uh, childhood years. I love to play in nature a lot. I mean that that's probably the main thing. I just love to be by myself and play with like sticks and always always outside, always barefoot, always climbing trees, kind of
1: like a normal child, I guess. I'm wondering like when you were a child is that the way you experienced it like you that you were grateful did you have a what what was the what was it like growing up uh, I guess what you used to call an immigrant journey Yeah I mean I think I think the gratitude definitely was was easier to to carry
0: because of the, the lived experience of you know your parents building up the life that you had you know you weren't born into a life of of all these nice things like you saw them painstakingly like penny pinched and coupon cut out and overtime hours worked and sacrifices made. So like all of those things, I guess, every well, as a child and as a, as adolescent and now as an adult, it's like everything you get, you earn, you know, you, you work, you work, you work,
1: which is uh, has its own challenges later down the road. And if you go back to because I remember when we spoke before, you said like this immigrant journey for you is something, you know, that like you said, has given you an awareness of uh, growing up and the context in which you grew up. But it's also made you extremely pivotal in life.
0: I always feel a bit self-conscious because, of course, like I, I didn't grow up in wanting of anything. I mean, I was clothed and fed and I had a most amazing childhood. But I think the emphasis in our family was on it was sort of stoic in a way. And like essentialist, I guess. There wasn't a lot of frivolous things that we would be surrounded by, again, like, you know, the latest technology, the latest sort of things. So I think that is characteristic of many families that I grew up around, which were also uh, from, from a different place, were also building themselves up from scratch. It was sort of the idea that you had to create something from nothing, right? You had to create a life from nothing. So that's what I think was Infuse into us and I think to be f- completely frank with you the first place that that manifests is in the school system anyway I, I won't pretend to be a social scientist but I think I mean anecdotally kids who are immigrants worked way harder you know because education is like the great leveler. so if you don't have opportunity because you know your parents have all these connections for you well work harder in school so you know be an achiever achieve do well get good grades and then do beyond that and then go further and further and further. And just, you, you are a witness to so much hard work, so much sacrifice. So make it worth it. Be a return on that investment of time and money and sacrifice. And I think to be honest, I took it overboard sometimes, um, and burned out and I don't know, it's all part of the journey. Right. But I, there's definitely many things that I wouldn't have done if I didn't have that kind of internal feeling of needing to, to succeed in yeah. some way.
1: Um, and it gave you a value but, of hard work and creativity, I hear. Are there any other values that you think that that gives or that, are about, that, that helped you in life?
0: Absolutely. Humility. I did this personality test and out of like 90 people, okay, no, that, that, that this just sounds, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I had this weird result, right? And it was unconditionality, and the person who was leading it was like, okay, yeah, that that's kind of interesting. Hmm, I don't know how you'll use that as a strength professionally, but yeah, something to make note of. And I was like looking at my results and like, oh, this explains a lot. And it's basically the characteristic of, you know, like at a basic level, accepting everyone you meet, you know, a trained lack of prejudice. And I think that's 100% along with humility, something that was passed down is sort of this sense that, you're never above anyone, really, and if you, you kind of start at that, uh, that that's your ground zero, and it becomes mm. it, it becomes a lot harder to maintain that because I every mean, our whole world is 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 like built on these kind of you know you need to feel important, and in order to feel important, well someone has to be less important than you. I mean, I went to a bog standard school, and then I followed my sister's path and actually went to an art school for uh, what we call high school that was pivotal we studied the dramatic arts theater for like 75 minutes every day for four years um and you're just surrounded by an environment that not just recognizes the arts but like emphasizes them and puts them front and center so I mean I was studying sciences but I was living in the arts you know so that was me for four years I thought I was going to go into acting Uh, and then I uh I chose to go to university and a number of things influenced my decision. Number one, a scholarship. And number two, a tarot card. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. I was like engineering. I had, I had gotten into an engineering program uh, and, you know, a few others. And the only one that was uh, a science program was at this small school set in a forest on a river, an hour and a half from the city. And yeah, we did a, man, this sounds so funny when I'm saying it, but yeah, we did this tarot card reading with my mom and like the word didn't make any sense and we just put it away with that, oh yeah, what bogus. And then we kind of read something and it said, actually look at the picture in the card. (laughs) And the picture lo and behold was like a woman with long hair standing beside a tree and where the, 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 the kind of hollow in the tree was, there was like this beam of light with like this kind of heart thing. So (laughs) we just felt like, you know what? Yeah, this feels right. And then I never looked back. And then I felt like that was the most right decision ever. I studied environmental science and uh, the rest is sort of history. I've been doing that ever since. Um, And now it's sort of spread into the broader kind of social impact um,
1: sphere, Anastasia went on to talk about her chance encounter with someone who was to become a friend, who then hired her to work in his clean tech company and sent her to Google's Singularity University, where she goes on to meet her future co-founders. Almost as if everything in life depends on serendipity. After getting the opportunity to hear more about who Anastasia is, I wanted to know more about what she does. So I began by asking her to tell me about Magic Water,
0: we we specialize in air-to-water technology, uh, specifically atmospheric water generation. So what is that? Okay, um, actually, it's based on a very ancient principle. Uh, for thousands of years, humans have had very ingenious ways of capturing um, moisture from the air around us. And something we like to share is that There is six times more water in the air than all of the rivers in the world combined. So it's a huge amount of water that uh, exists as um, moisture in the air. And, um, you know, for thousands of years it would be captured through clay huts. Um, In nature, beetles capture it in between their wings. Um, and so our technology is basically an evolution of that using some of the kind of modern uh, modern capabilities of of today. So if it's the easiest way to imagine is if you have a cold glass of water on a hot day and you put it on a table, and what you'll notice after a while is droplets starting to form on the glass and they are starting to roll down. Um, And so what's happening there is condensation. So hot, humid air is hitting a cold surface and it is coalescing into these beautiful droplets and it becomes heavier and heavier in those droplets and it starts to to roll down. And when it rolls down, you can actually collect it. So actually what our technology does is is that at scale. So we use uh, the condensation principle um, with sort of an emphasis on uh, improving, increasing the deltas that are happening, so the the distance between the colds, the colds and the hots, um, to really uh, exacerbate and, and intensify uh, and scale that process of creating water that essentially runs down and is and is collected by a gravity fed
1: system. Tell me about meeting the co founders. Yeah, so we met. We were all working on different
0: things. Beth was running a successful filtration company in Kenya a lot of the places that she was serving started to run out of water. So when she came to California for this sort of Google funded program we were doing, focused on applying technology to the world's biggest problems, um, she had that in the back of her mind. For me, uh, for my co-founder Claire, she was living in Malawi, she's British. Uh, she had left you know, a decade of consulting in the big city, moved to Malawi, I was working in social entrepreneurship and, you know, had come to California looking for a next step, I would say. And for me, you know, uh, well, firstly, I'm the, um, you know, I'm the youngest in the team, (laughs) but I was uh, working in this clean tech space uh, for a nanotech startup. We were, uh, funny enough, also taking things from air, (laughs) but what we were taking was uh, carbon emissions and capturing them and what's called sequestering them and making products out of them. So things like additives to polymers, um, but also uh, things that carry cancer treatments in the body, a uh, whole host of things. And a tiny project we happened to be working on was on dew harvesting. So we were providing the coating for these dew harvesters for a University of Chicago project that were doing passive dew harvesting. So collecting condensational plastic and speeding up the process of those drops coalescing and running down and so beth heard about this somehow she said hey i heard you're doing this dew harvesting thing and uh she said look is that is that something that we could do in dry parts of kenya like where there's no water and i said basically oh wow i have no idea (laughs) Uh, but that was the question, right? Like that was the first question, and then we basically we we became determined to find out, and so um, you know that led us into our first year, which was very much R and D focused. Then our second year was entirely head down, focused on delivering projects for for big corporations, for Microsoft, for AB and Bev, for a number of partners, and then in our third year, which has been the last eight months we wanted to refocus on Kenya. So we have a warehouse uh, at Gearbox there. We had a small team and um, we made a lot of progress on establishing these operations in Kenya, which is something that air to water companies just don't do, right? They just, I mean, the space is already so small, but what we were trying to do is um, quite different to to the other players. Uh, And so that's what we've been doing in the last year is setting up a presence in East Africa, having an emphasis on local assembly, uh, you know, increasing local manufacturing as much as possible for jobs, for local jobs, but also for resourcing, sourcing of parts, having a sustainable logistics chain, um, you know, having the tech close to its zone of implementation, looking at an IoT layer, developing that, that's still... In progress, um, and really moving towards our vision of of a democratized source of water, you know, of a de- of a decentralized source of clean, reliable, renewable, sustainable water. So yeah, you know, moving moving the needle towards towards that vision. And when we say democratized, what we mean is like water is quite political, especially in places where it's a complicated water picture. And so a lot of the times people think water scarcity, which means it's difficult for you to access water, only happens when like you're in a desert. It's absolutely not true. A lot of water scarcity is actually economic scarcity. People can't afford to access clean water. So they drink the dirty stuff instead. And if their grandmothers did it and their mothers did it, and now they do it, you can best believe that there is a resistance to actually something new. So yeah there's a whole kind of um, the fabric of social change is is filled with those elements that are not actually technological. The technology is a vehicle, but the change is 100 percent human. you know it's a behavior change. so uh, that's what we mean when we say democratize access.
1: yeah That's amazing. I really like the way that you've um, explained that because indeed like water investment and the, the space that you're in is actually a source. For conflict. Um, it's talking about how we can become more resilient. So you say like the vision is indeed looking not only at, at, at water and the technology and building stuff so that people actually have access, but it's a h- human change. And what I hear you saying is like, it's, you can build these machines, but it's actually even the way you build them or the organization or the business or how you work locally. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you, where does that come, like that knowledge come from? Who do you work with? How did you set, how are you setting that up? What do you need? These are these are the, the, the
0: real questions, right? Like, we don't know the answers to many of them. We, I would be lying to say if I did. But what your question brings to mind for me is like the need to be adaptable. So when we first started, if you told me that our first paid project would be to be providing water for a data center to cool servers and that, the only community component of that where people were actually drinking water would be you know a, a project that we paired with the core uh, the core need. I would tell you like you're joking. I mean that is not something we could have ever predicted. and yet our first kind of traction as a company was actually um, exactly that, right I mean, our first paid works were for these industry-focused projects where they needed water, but it wasn't for drinking. And so, what we needed to do was find a way to reconcile our company's goal, uh, our company's vision, and what uh, you know, our raison d'être, uh, with with where there was a business need. And I will say, for example, in this in this small niche that we operate in, which is the atmospheric water generator space (AWGs). That is the the sort of moral of the story is that most of these units are produced for military purposes. They are dual use technology. And so I think to answer what we need, what we need is partners like we've had, flexible partners. And now, you know, we're focused. We've we've sort of bifurcated our our customer focus to have one which is as we've had, which is uh, private sector Private sector entities who have a need for this technology and have a willingness to have an impact as well. So doing this cross-subsidized model, and the second is the foundations, the WFPs, the UNs of the world who operate on a completely different model of how they uh, how they assess business value, and you know we're we're making some inroads in that space now. So. Yeah, I think I think you know if I'm thinking of a business leader who who may be listening or or you know is is thinking about how do these things exist? They exist because like people take a chance on on an idea and they you know take a chance on the vision. To be honest in our case they've become rewarded, right? I think there's something to be said for non-duality, you know, like the whole social enterprise space is basically bridging business and impact and saying we don't need to do one or the other. Like you can do both. Let's be creative. Um, there's the practicalities of running a business and, and needing, you know, f- um, capital to operate to pay people so that they can pay their rent. But that doesn't mean we need to compromise and kind of lose sight of what it is we're doing. So it's kind of this, you know, um, I don't want to say polarity, but you know, you're 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 balancing, you're balancing those things, your needs and your and your vision. Uh, Much like
1: much like life, I guess, you know,
0: what you want and what what is and what what could be
1: Yeah, your reality Um, and your dream or your. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you call duality. And if you see like social entrepreneurship is like uh, something that in the past 10 years has really grown. And at the same time, you see a lot of businesses trying to integrate purpose more into their operations. Do you think it's something that's mm. in your vision of the future, especially when it comes to such a huge global issue like clean water and sanitation, that it'll always be like that? But do you see change? Do you see change of attitudes, social
0: change? I think what comes to mind for me, like at the heart of all of this is people, right? Like there's contracts and then there's fancy media PR stuff. And there's, you know, the, the, the legal and all and like the financial side, but at the heart of it, it's people. Um, and to be a bit more concrete, what I mean is at the end of the day, it, you know, what happens is somebody in the position that they're in decides to use their own values to influence a tiny decision that's made in a, in a huge mammoth company, right? And the more of those little shifts that happen that are value-driven, right, it slowly starts to kind of shape uh, what is happening. So uh, to be even more concrete, one of the people that we worked with was this amazing woman who is a director at one of these blue chip companies, right? Like top five tech companies in the world. She had like a sphere of influence, right? It wasn't everything. She couldn't change the company's direction the next day and change the stock valuation. No, but she had a sphere of influence and she decided to say, okay, at this stage in my career, right? I'm X years old. I've been doing this for X many years. I've gotten up to to this place. I could either use this opportunity to serve myself and just keep climbing the ladder and uh, basically, you know, focus on my own, my own goals, like in my own tiny life. Or I can think about what do I actually care about in this world? Okay, great. I care about, you know, lower income countries. I care about women. I care about access to water. I care about, um, I care about the people who have less than I do great. So I have these values. I wake up every day and I think about them and then I forget about them and I go to work. So somewhere in her journey, she decided to say, actually, I'm going to wake up, think about those values and bring them with me to work. And then she happened to meet us. We happened to develop a relationship and she happened to get us our first corporate contract. So the opportunities are out there, but it's not for, it will not happen without that you know, personal desire to kind of um, use whatever sphere of influence you have to make a tiny change in the world, right, that you want to see. So I guess that's my point is that you don't need to go out on the street with with um, what are these things called, the, the, the protest signs, yeah, for you to make the change that you really care about. Like you don't have to have this personality as a business leader And that's completely divorced from the things you really care about, like 100%, you can marry those things even in a small way, because for us, it made the biggest difference as a startup, someone took a chance on us. And that,
1: you know, was the first leg up that we needed to continue. Uh, I I yeah. love that you said that. You said that before when we talked about relationships being overlooked and undervalued and that networks should be built basically more on relationships rather than uh, opportunity. So what you're saying is like your whole self to work is necessary to be able to build a relationship yeah. with someone as well because otherwise you can't see what their values are or how you connect.
0: 100%. I think I see it more. I mean, you look at uh you look at the different business leaders who are the the C-suites of these big companies that basically are the most powerful things on our earth, right? It's no longer governments. It's, it's the tech companies, let's be honest. But slowly you see, like, um, I think it's the CEO of one, one of the CEOs, you know, they, uh, they, uh, of the big five, uh, th- one of their children is, is autistic. And so they have made it a mandate that all the products that they create as a company that serve like half of the world's population, you know, there's a pathway for them to be accessible. So it's like they're weaving that into their company's core values because those are core values for them as a person. That's the the magnitude
1: of of impact you can have when you bring your own values into your work. We're talking about the sustainable development goal, clean water and sanitation, which is SDG 6, to ensure the availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Can you tell me, I mean, it's in some ways obvious, but how what you're doing is connecting to that sustainable development goal and whether it is indeed even at the core of what you do. I think in many ways,
0: what we strive to do helps create a situation for people that, that improves their access to water. And in that way, you know, I think it is in line with the SG, SDG. Do we orient around it? I would say we use it as a guide. Um, It's been present in many grant programs that we've participated in. It's helpful because for the limits that we know these things have, um, we look at it, I think in a conversation I even had in the past with my, with my CEO Beth, like, it's like the human rights charter. We look back on it now. It was a foundational piece that, that, informs how we see other human beings. Um, but of course it had all of its holes and, and limitations, uh, you know, when it was created. So for us, like we see a lot of issues with the SDGs. I mean, we don't really find that they are, it, it's, it's so big, so aspirational of a, of a framework that it's hard to, 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 to say, okay, how is this actually distilling down on the ground? Because for someone, for most people who live in the global south or in low-income countries, like those things are are as abstract as you know GDP. So it's like for people like us who are in that mezzanine where we operate between those policymakers who ha- who can unlock funding, and then the people down here who are literally involved in the everyday day-to-day, you know, hand-to-mouth economy. For us, like yes, we sit between those two two ends of the spectrum. Um, so it, they are valuable in that way. I mean, it helps refocus. It helps ground what you're doing for people who are not as,
1: as well-read or informed, perhaps, about what you're doing. It sounds like it's a shared language as well for a group of people. But when it comes to the people on the ground that you're working with, actually putting purpose at the center of your organization and like um, being a social enterprise that's looking for impact and what kind of impact you want to create, is that easier than as a language? use? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things
0: that you come up against um, as I say, on the ground, right? Like when you're actually doing the thing that that you're talking about doing, it's a whole different world. like the SDGs, as you said, that's a very good way of putting it. It's a shared language. It gives us an anchor. Um, you can't assume that everyone cares about the thing that you care about. like even if it's as basic to life as water you really, you can't assume. I mean, so I guess it's a nice, it's something to point to and say, hey, this is actually an SDG. And that means that there's some, you know, at some level, we've agreed as a, as a collective that it's really, really important. So I think
1: for that, we're grateful to have it. And we're grateful to be able to kind of point to it as a pillar. Yeah. And it sounds to me like a lot of people say that innovation happens when you also put like these goals, you combine them. And I hear you saying a lot about like sustainable production yeah, and consumption livelihoods and partnerships. You know, those are livelihoods are really important uh, for you. But let's take this one SDG because I wanted to like do a short like, journey. Um, if you think about the the goal of clean water and sanitation um it's kind of a meditative approach before the
0: call <laughs> okay
1: good <laughs> oh great so I won't have to like guide you through like every step but I will say like if you did think of, hold that dear goal and say okay clean water and sanitation for all and you went back uh you know a few generations your parents your grandparents your great-grandparents and you picture what it was like then what do you see
0: I think about actually
1: surprisingly something
0: very specific. I think about my grandparents who are still alive um, and the fact that in their 80s and 90s uh, and they live in, in Ukraine, when I am with them, we actually walk down for about two kilometers, two or three kilometers to a, uh, a spring of water where you where we like fill up these like plastic things. And then we put them on our backpacks and then we carry them all the way back to the apartment. On their street, they have a water dispenser that they could put coins into and a truck comes and fills it. But the reason that they walk to the spring, again, in their 80s, uh, is because they want pure water. And for them, it's like a basis of health. It's like you could eat whatever you want, but if you're drinking bad water, good luck. What I think about is that they live um, with the option of technology and the option of their old way, of how they're used to doing it. And both are necessary. You know, there are some days where my grandpa's legs are not in good shape and they have to go to the automat, uh, I don't know what it's called, the automat, the water automat down the road. And, um, you know, they, they, they compromise, basically. So both are necessary. So when I think about what we're trying to do, we're not replacing the Earth's natural bounty of fresh water, but we are complementing that and reducing the strain on those resources. And it doesn't mean that we have a hubris and we think that we're creating something better than the Earth. Like that will never happen. But out of necessity, technology needs to fill the gaps that have either been created by humans or exacerbated by humans and climate change or, you know, have been created because of uh, the way that our population has grown. So it's not an either
1: or. That's what I think about. It's both. And it, it sounds to me a little bit like we need to obviously also take care of the planet. And like you say, it's yeah. I bouncy. will
0: say, because it's very important that this is said, um, we will never advise, like as people who are working with a water technology product, we will always Advise conservation, before you consider technology. That is the core principle, right? Before you need to create it, try to reuse it, try to conserve it. The project that we did in South Africa, in Cape Town, uh, we also did one in Johannesburg, but specifically the Cape Town one happened in the months after day zero, when they had run out of water. And so we like to use this example because we say, if we were to if you were to ask me what the solution was we would have said conserve we would have said reuse we would have said create a system where you won't reach this point of overuse but now that you have you have no other choice but look outside for technology solutions right but this is not the path i would want the planet to follow that's the point people sometimes think oh you guys are like don't, you don't the planet can can become like completely devoid of of, of fresh consumable water because you'll have all these machines like stop no that's not what we're saying at all
1: <laughs> yeah so you're walking uh, away from your grandparents uh, that story past your parents and like to where you are now where we are in 2020 and you're still thinking about clean water and sanitation as a goal we walk toward the future and you know my children, will be in their 30s, 40s in uh, 2040, 2050. And we're walking past their generation. They have children and then their children have children. And it's like 2100. And we're still thinking about what clean water and sanitation means when you go into the future. What is the world going to look like? Is there something that we know from that image now? What I would love, actually, a change in our thinking
0: and um, to reinstill in our children's children, uh, the value and the preciousness of, of water. It hasn't been that long since we've, we, we were born and raised with that attitude. And somewhere along the way, we lost it. Um, and we need to get it back. And not just for water, but for, for all of the Earth's uh, bounty. And um, we can become a multiplanetary species, which maybe we will be in 100 years. And yet we'll still be faced with the fact that we need water, whether we're on Mars or on Earth. So um, that's what I would love to see. It's, it's um, the way a child thinks is the way an adult thinks, and it will be the way that their child thinks. So it's not some extra-worldly solution. It starts like in our own brains. So I, I would love to see us return to that thinking. And it requires us thinking beyond, uh, beyond ourselves.
1: For our listeners, I can see you dreaming into that future. You're there. And I would love to like, follow you and uh, ask you the question that Pablo Santa Eufemia, who was my previous guest, who set up a business. I don't know if you know him, but uh, on uh, it's called Bridge for Billions. And it's saying that entrepreneurship potential is everywhere, basically, but opportunity is not. So how can we provide uh, more entrepreneurship opportunity to a lot of these people around Uh, the world because, you know, I I loved the way he said, I can't suffer everything and I can't make everything. So I, you know, if I empathize with people who know their communities, then I just need to give them the tools and the mentoring and stuff. So his question very much related to that was, what do you do to empower others, unblock challenges and barriers so that they can achieve their purpose? I would say like three things. The first
0: is let people in, So be vulnerable with people. Don't show up shiny and polished. Show up as it is, um, because nothing helps someone more than being able to relate to you. And most people relate to your challenges and not your successes. And the second thing is trust people. So whether that's your engineers or your team, like trust them, give them what they need, but almost give them too much autonomy because most of the time what we've seen is they end up outperforming what we otherwise would have carved out in specific project plans and specific, you know, OKRs. People need a direction. People need a direction to feel psychologically safe and to feel supported. And as long as those things are clear, they will usually do a better job than if they were micromanaged. And I guess the last thing is, I think if we get over that self-conscious, self-imposter uh, syndrome, you know, like sharing, as much as I feel uncomfortable, honestly, sometimes talking about things, because I feel like there's so many other people who have done so much more. But does that mean that my story isn't worth telling? No, you know? And so I guess that's the last thing is like, everyone has something to share. You know, I have something to share. And so opportunities like this, is hopefully that way of like giving
1: giving back in in some tiny way. You have uh, the opportunity to ask my next guest a question. Yes, I want to ask something about
0: what is something you know you don't know anything about, and um, what is something that makes you deeply uncomfortable, whether it's in your work or in the
1: society you live in. Thank you so much. I I am. Um you need to go if there's anything or closing words we um have a minute or two or anything that you would still want to say
0: just just thank you and uh for all the listeners i told i have said to tessa that we need to flip this on her and have this podcast where we ask you these things i'm so curious what is in your mind uh and how you you know how you think about all uh, the ideas that come up on the show and i think this is a great great uh great way to think about the world. So thank you for creating this corner where we
1: can talk like this. Um, And thanks so much. Thank you. I'm sure we are going to keep on talking about it. I don't know if I'm going (laughs) to record it, but we'll see.
0: Well, thank you, Tessa. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.